if you want something different, you have to do something different. But if you are a hundred percent satisfied with your life, don't do anything different. Mm. Mm. Right. Well, hello, everybody. You're back on the Faculty Factory podcast, and I'm still Kim Skorupski here at Hopkins, and I'm looking at a brand new friend, Dr. Mark Guadagnoli. Mark is from UNLV and came to us, came to the Faculty Factory podcast as a result of our reaching out saying, hey, we want some new guests. We want some frequent flyers to come on back. And here sits Mark. Mark, welcome to Faculty Factory podcast. How are you? Thank you, Kim. I'm I'm very well, and I'm very excited to get to talk to you. Well, Dr. Guadagnoli, will you please tell everyone <laughs> who you are and what you do at UNLV? I am the Senior Associate Dean for Faculty Affairs at UNLV School of Medicine. It's a relatively new school of medicine. Um, we uh, have now been entered our fourth class, um, and we're in the process of the fifth, so we're that new. And so, even though my role is faculty affairs, um, I, you know, that's a that's a catch-all phrase right now for you know whatever needs to be done wherever I can help out around the school. And so, my uh, my background is in cognitive science and human performance, and which is originally why I was brought over to the med school to help with optimizing learning, performance, communication skills, uh, optimal performance, basically. So. Uh, you know, I've had the opportunity to get to work in corporate areas and universities um, and and also with uh, elite level athletes, which has been super cool as well. Super cool indeed, because I am a gym rat and anything around sports and athletic endeavors and that just always uh, gets me excited. So when I read about your work about high performance athletes and optimizing their performance and this notion that's different, new to me, stress-resistant learning, I thought, this is really unique. We, we, this is going to be a really good conversation. And you also shared with me that you have a podcast called The Academy, and you're all about learning. And so this is going to be a really good mechanism and a vehicle to share some other information as well. So I definitely want to make sure we talk a little bit about that. And if you could just, you know, tell us what you wanted to share with the Faculty Factory podcast audience today without, we don't want to forget the Academy, your podcast. Well, yeah. So I'll just tell you uh, briefly, and thank you. <laughs> thank you for plugging the Academy. We're going to be releasing uh, videos and and podcasts uh, very soon. So I'll let you know the details about that. And, and I'm excited because we get to give out free content to people and hopefully it'll be useful. And it's not uh, it's not your typical med school content. So it, it really, you know, some of it early is shaped by the things that I'm interested in. And then, uh, but we've got some just amazing people at the UNLV School of Medicine, uh, the Kirk Kikorian School of Medicine at UNLV is the official title. And um, and so we get to hear from them. Our, our very first podcast guest is a guy named John Files, who was the head of trauma surgery uh, and has been for, for many years. And he has uh, experienced the October 1 shootings in Las Vegas and a whole variety of things along the way. He's an amazing person, and I, I think you'll find it fascinating. But So to answer the question, what are we going to talk about? I, I, I would love to pick up on the theme that you just mentioned, and that is uh, optimizing performance. And you know that's physical performance. That's the mental side. 
One of the things that's really, really important to optimization is not the, uh, so most people think about optimization as being in the game or in the competition or that, you know, in competition could be an academic test. It could be the operating theater, or it could be playing golf, right? Any of those are competition. One of the things that most people miss, but is incredibly important is the preparation for the competition and the uh, feedback after the competition, because the competition is the test. Everything else is the preparation and the improvement pieces. And so really the, the performer, the best, you know, that I've gotten to deal with some of the best in the world, um, you know, they are people who are constantly looking to get better and, and not in a, not in a defeatist kind of way, but in a very, very positive mindset about how can we make this even better? And, and it's remarkable how that mindset really propels people into greatness. So. Wow, Mark, um, this is, this is really important stuff. And I, I'm envisioning our faculty who we serve, you know, around the country and around the world, listening to this podcast and trying to place myself in their shoes. So early career faculty members who come to our institution, very well-trained and prepared and enthusiastic and encouraged and inspired and raring to go. And maybe, you know, pretty high level of confidence around writing papers and grants and building a lab and building a clinical practice. And yet a little bit of, you know, nervous tension around actually producing Mm-hmm. Then you've got the, you know, the middle career faculty members who they got the 10, 20, 30 publications, they got the grants in the bucket, they got a nice uh, clinical practice chugging along, built a good lab, et cetera, et cetera. And they're starting to maybe wonder about, well, you know, what's what's next? Where What leadership positions are available for me? Then I'm thinking of our late career faculty members who are thinking, what's my next chapter? Here I am, a professor. 200 publications, dozens and dozens of grants. I'm pretty good about done 10,000 of these procedures. Um, is this it? What, what next? And how do, we, how do we optimize our own performance? So I don't know, you know where you're going to go with this, but my mind is thinking of a saying that I read recently about, you know, average people don't think they need coaching. Good people know they need coaching. Excellent people want the truth. Mm-hmm. And so how do we, or how do you, you're the expert, Mark, how do you um, teach that stress-resistant learning and how to either go bigger or go deeper? Because, you know, some people need to go bigger and go outside and go, you know, go there. And other people need to stay here but just drill a little bit deeper. Does that make any, any of that you know, nonsense making sense to you? <laughs> <laughs> oh, it makes really good sense. I'll tell you one of the things that's interesting to me about coaching is if you look at, you know, the, and you look at the players in the Super Bowl, you know, some of the best in the world in, in any field, regardless of what it is, have coaches because they know that they can't do it themselves and that, that they're going to be facilitated by having a coach. And yet in academia, we oftentimes look at coaching as, as uh, you know, well, we have a problem, right? And so a coach is brought in. But the truth is that the best in the world in whatever they do have coaches 
right? That's part of the reason they are the best. And then the other part is that they have enough humility and enough stubbornness about getting better that they'll do whatever they need to do to be the best. And so um, I think coaching in a lot of ways has can can have a bad, um, you know, bad perception. Uh, and really it's a, it's, if, if the individual thinks to themselves, how can I be my best and optimize my abilities and be as happy and healthy and productive as I can be and make the biggest contribution in, for example, fields of medicine, which are incredibly important. It's too big of a game to just leave to chance. Right. And so to have somebody who can help structure the way that you think about it and move forward is is it's just too important not to do that. Yeah. And so. So how, now, how, do, you, yeah, how do you do it, Mark? Well, so it's interesting. You know, one of the the things I think we can start with is a very common phrase that I see working with, again, with athletes and corporate folks and physicians and so forth. What got you here? is not what's going to get you there, right? And it, the other side of it is the famous uh, quote, you know, oh, there you go. You got the book. <laughs> That's fantastic. That's fantastic. So, you know, the the definition of insanity, right? Doing the same thing, expecting something different. So the point, the point of it is, now, it doesn't say throw everything away. It says, let's look at everything in, in an objective way and see which one of those we want to follow, move forward with us and which ones we want to change. Because the fact of the matter is, you know, you're at Hopkins, the people that you work with, including yourself, very high achievers, very successful. And, and so the, the natural thing to think is, well, look, I'm, I'm a, you know, top level person. Who are you going to tell me? How are you going to tell me to get better? Right? Yeah, yeah. Well, the thing is that you, there are things that you have done that have gotten you to a certain place, but those no longer necessarily the most efficient things to get you to the next place that you want to be. And, and the truth is that if you want something different, you have to do something different. But if you are a hundred percent satisfied with your life, don't do anything different. Mm. Mm. Right. And so if, if, you know, your audience is listening to this and I ask the question, who, who is a hundred percent satisfied with their life, their emotional life, their physical life, their spiritual life, um, et cetera, et cetera. Because if you raise your hand and you are a hundred percent happy with that, don't do anything different. Right. But if you don't raise your hand, there are places to do something different. And that's where coaching comes in. Right. Right. Coaching and advising. And so to answer the question for you, the foundation of a lot of the coaching piece that I work on is um, is around this uh, universal theory of learning that's called the challenge point framework. And it's been applied to medicine. It's been applied to a variety of teaching, performance areas, and so forth. And there's hundreds of uh, research articles on this. It's a it came from a paper that a friend and colleague, Tim Lee, and I published uh, in 2004. And then a lot of people have picked up the, the mantle and moved forward with it since then. But, but the essence of it is that at some point, you have to challenge yourself to create a sufficient difficulty so that you fail. And it's not 
just fail, right? It's the failure of what we found is somewhere between 65 and 70% seems to be an optimal level. Now, interestingly, there's a paper that just came out uh, that I think is called the 85% rule. It's a pretty vast oversimplification of how you optimize practice. So let me give you a, a really simple analogy, okay? If you go to a gym, because you said you're a gym rat, and you're you're doing bicep curls, okay? And you can you can do a bicep curl with 15 pounds and you can lift it, let's say 10 times, okay? And then, oh. then it's a, 12. 12 times, there you go. Okay. <laughs> and so if you were to take a five pound weight and and lift that 12 times, it would you would look really good you know, you would be able to do it easily. There wouldn't be a struggle, but you wouldn't be gaining, right? You wouldn't be stressing the system enough so that you get to a point of failure and therefore you wouldn't really be able to gain efficiently. It's better than nothing, right? It's better than not working out at all, but we're talking about optimization, Mm. not just movement. So, but if you also grab a 50 pound weight and you can't do it at all, that's not good for you either. Right now, everybody knows this when it comes to weight training. Do that, do the 15 pounds, you do it 12 times, you struggle the last, you know, three, four, five times, and you're somewhere in your optimized state. Okay. What we don't think about is doing those same exact things, the same concept with our cognitive tasks. When we're trying to learn something, how do we increase the efficiency of learning? And, and create stress-resistant learning, which is under stress, we're able to perform that task. Whoa, 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 whoa. Okay, yeah. I'll do and it. And so the, you have to stress the system during practice because if you don't, then you fail under stress in competition. And so if you're learning a surgical technique, if you're learning, if you're a, a medical student and you're learning, you know, charts or uh, facts or so forth, any of these kinds of things have to be done in a way that stresses the system in a, in a smart way, an intelligent stress, so that when you're, it does two things. One, when you're under stress, you're already prepared for it. And two, that it, it liberates the, uh, the biochemistry of learning in a way that your body is set up to learn so or your brain is set up to learn so here's here's a kind of a short uh, idea about this if if you go into class a regular classroom you know and a student sits there through an entire one hour lecture they may remember 10 15 percent of that lecture it's incredibly inefficient but part of the reason why they don't remember it is because they're sitting in a chair leaning back comfortable and they're essentially, your brain is saying, hey, we're, our arousal level is pretty low. This can't be very important. So why are we going to waste our energy remembering this? Yeah. On the other hand, if you're sitting in the front row and you're asking and answering questions and you're engaged in what's happening, now our arousal state's a little bit higher and your, uh, your brain's saying, my arousal state's pretty high. This must be important. I should remember this. Okay. And so in a way your arousal state is, is dictating whether or not you're going to automatically learn this material or not. Okay. That same concept is true 
from everything else we're talking about. If you stress the system enough, it's going to raise your arousal system enough so that your brain says, this must be important. So let me remember it. And then when we're stressed in competition, it's like, oh, I've already been stressed before. I, I know this feeling. Yeah. I'm fine. Yeah. Okay. So, so I know that those are big general concepts, right? Yeah. Well, I, I totally see this in not only in, in the gym or physically um, stressing myself. I understand the principle of active learning and adult learning principles, how we're all taught to have, you know, which is why we do breakout groups and dyads and role rehearsals and role playing and scenarios and getting people so they are, are actively engaged and and on and thinking and um, they're not multitasking and doing something else, which is hard on Zoom. But, you know, we kind of figure that out. But help me figure this out for outside of a traditional learning environment. How can I, as a faculty member, create enough stress that I am improving my ability to develop a good writing habit, to write a better paper, to design a better experiment, to get a clear, concise, compelling, coherent set of specific aims for the next grant application. How does that kind of optimization of our learning, maybe not some, our behavior, how do we, maybe I'm talking about habits here. You know, how do we put just enough pressure and stress that we're not just kind of going through the day on autopilot and our brains are just kind of blah, that, that we can spark something that says, oh yeah, this is, this is good. This is a good gig that I've got going here. This is a good habit I'm in. This talking with my clients, my patients, my lab folks, my colleagues, my papers, my grants, this, yeah, yeah, I got this. This is, this is good. How does that translate into that environment? Yeah, it's, this is such a fascinating question because there, there are so many different answers to it. So let me go through just a couple of things. One thing that's really, really important about this stress concept that we just talked about is that you have the right mindset about stress. And this, this is something that is funny. I was just talking to, I get the good fortune to work with UNLV's golf team, men's golf team. And, um, and some of them are, uh, that literally we've had the number one amateur in the world before the number one professional in the world won the national championship, all these things. So they're so good. They're just a, a remarkably good. And one of the guys, a freshman just won a tournament that gets him into the masters to the British open and so forth as an amateur. It's, it's incredible. And so we're talking about these, the same concepts uh, that you just asked about, which are incredibly important. The thing about it is it's not just more is better. There is a, a Goldilocks zone for this optimized stress, and that zone changes depending on your level of ability. So just to use the example of you using 15 pounds, 12 reps, right? That's only good for you now. Eventually, what was an appropriate challenge, because you get stronger, is not appropriate anymore. And so you need to change the challenge as you change as a performer. And so that's a really important concept in general. You can't be static or your growth will be static. Um, but the, one of the things that's really important is to have the correct mindset about this stress, to be able to say, instead of I'm struggling now, I must not be talented enough. 
to say, I'm struggling now. How cool is this? I'm, I'm getting better. I'm learning. Right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, Carol Dweck's work in mindset is instrumental in that. It's a, you know, it's phenomenal information. Yeah. I really strongly recommend it. But the point is, if you don't have the right attitude about it, which is not just philosophy, because the whole physiology changes based on the attitude as well. Um, there's there's a, a book called The Upside of Stress, I think, that talks about this as well. And uh, Kelly McGonigal uh, does a beautiful job explaining it. And, um, and then uh, Robert Sapolsky's work on stress is similar. But anyway, the, the point to this is you need to be able to stress the system intelligently. You need to have the right mindset about the stress and actually really get excited and, and embrace it. And that's the ideal situation when, when you're in the classroom situation that we talked about. Sitting up front makes some people nervous. And, and if it makes you too nervous, that's not the place for you to be. But if it makes you appropriately nervous, that's exactly where it should be. Wow. Okay. Oh, Dr. Guadagnoli, um, this, is, this is really cool stuff because you're reminding me and reminding all of us, I'm kind of back to this idea of being learning to be comfortable in a certain amount of discomfort. Right, right. You know, that... Um, I, I remember learning in graduate school that the complete absence of stress is death. So <laughs> there's distress, but there's eustress, e right. stress. So yeah. the eustress is like you're planning a wedding or a graduation or a big party. It's stressful, but it's good stress. Mm-hmm. And of course, we all know that the bad, the negative stress and negative life events. But if you had no stress, it's nothingness. It's it's death. And mm-hmm. so you're making me really um, have a really interesting thought about instead of maybe freaking out and feeling badly about ourselves as faculty members, again, I've got my, you know, faculty development hat on and faculty members beat themselves up for, I'm not fill in the blank. I'm not generating enough RVUs. My papers are getting rejected. My grants are getting triaged and they're not getting funded. I'm having HR is giving me a headache. I can't hire people to work in my lab on and on and on. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not good enough. And yeah, that's, that's real life. And, and gosh, let's layer a COVID, a pandemic on top of it, just for fun, that it's Mm -hmm. tough. It's so, so, so hard. And yet there's that realization of, you know, you hate to be trite, but you know, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger that we are, I'm learning here. It's like, I'm learning. And I'm thinking of that, that Matthew Broderick, I think the movie where the the machine was learning and the crazy professor's like, she's learning how to do tic-tac-toe. War game, war game. I knew I'd get there. I knew yeah. I'd get there. Remember, it's like, oh, okay. Yeah, this sucks, but I'm learning. Yeah, I'm going to let myself be, you know, be upset for a week. And then I'm going to say, what did I learn about that grant application? Why wasn't it funded? Okay, I'm learning, I'm learning, I'm learning. So, and then I, one more thing, and I want you to pick up on this, is that you made me think of that, I can never pronounce this guy's name. Sixi Menhal. It's about like flow. Something. Except me high. Thank yeah. you. Six and whatever, whatever. Dr. Mark Guadagnoli. I just love saying now Guadagnoli. I love, I'll say uh, your name, but I with, say his name again. Chick sent me high. Thank you. All right. So that idea of flow that too much over on this side and we're just completely de- depleted and fatigue. And maybe somebody would see, say, yeah, hello. That's, that's the pandemic right now, but below the curve, you're boring, blah, blah, blah. But there's that sweet spot, you know, that nice spot where we have to be stressed just enough that we're interested and pushed and nudged and out of our comfort zone 
but not so much that we're like, this hurts. I don't want to do this ever again. And it's painful. So is that something where, where is that, am I hitting like the spot of what you're talking about? Yeah, a lot of it. And so I will say, so kind of work backwards here, but the work that uh, Mihai Csikszentmihalyi does on flow, that did on flow, I should say, um, he's just passed away. Um, he it was fascinating. And then there's a person named Jesse Shell, who's a um, game designer who at uh, Carnegie Mellon, who's done some really cool work in that area as well. Um, but they really, you know, they talk about this idea of you want the challenge to be approximately equal to the skill level, right? And that's where you can get into flow. Challenge point actually models this and talks about specific techniques where during practice, you can up the challenge so that it, it uh, approximates the skill level. And so you're creating this intelligent struggle that yields the optimized learning. And there's this whole uh, literature, uh, neuroscience literature that supports this as far as the biochemistry of learning. It's, it's incredibly cool how all these things are stacked on top of each other um, for us. But let me, let me go back to what you said and put some tools to the questions that you just asked. Because we've been talking, I have been talking, sorry, about a little bit of uh, theory, but let me put some tools on top of this. Yeah. So all of this is going to start to set you up for shifting your view of, I didn't do enough grants or I didn't get this published or whatever, right? Shifting your view from playing not to lose, which a lot of people do, to playing to win. Well, so that's the shift well, that we're going to make. Not to lose versus playing to win. Wow. Okay. Just had to pause on that. That's pretty mind-blowing concept. I want, I'm thinking, how do we play not to lose? So here's, here's an example, okay? In sports, it's super easy. You get uh, in a golf tournament because we just mentioned golf. You got a three-shot lead, and all you do is hope the other per hope you don't screw up. And of course, you're going to screw up. As opposed to somebody who uh, has is down three shots, and they're just you know pushing, pushing, pushing. They're playing. They're not thinking about losing. They're thinking about winning. And so you get a guy like Tiger Woods, best in the world when he was the best, uh, best ever probably when he was the best. And, and if he was five shots ahead, he wanted to be six shots. And if he was six, he wanted to be seven and, and so forth. And there are people like that that just have this mindset. And you know that because they start talking about what they can do, not what they can't do. Mm. And, mm -hmm. and what they need to do going forward, not berating themselves about what they didn't do in the past. Oh, Mark, that is so cool because now you're making me realize that this, I, you know, this idea I'm having of some people during different career levels say, do I need to pull up roots and go out to do something else there versus go deeper? What I love is helping faculty members sometimes realize that the grass is not greener, that maybe go more deeply. And that is, I think what you're talking about that What's good enough of this idea that I'm already ahead of the game, Mark. I'm already a professor. I'm tenured. I got the grants. I'm good. I'm working at, you know, I'm at Cornell here, or, you know, UNLV. I'm good. I mean, you're talking to an expert here. There's not much more I could do. So that challenge of going 
deeper and doing more and challenging people. Well, where can you do more? Where can you do better? Yeah, you're good. You're at the top of the field. Maybe you are the number one RVU generator in your department. What more can you do? How can you advance that lead even more? And that mm-hmm. to me is the going deeper versus saying going broader. Okay, so let's let's put a specific tool to this. Thank you. And the specific tool is called Good Better How. It is the best feedback method I have ever ever used, and and I've I've used it literally with thousands of people in all different walks of life. And it is incredibly simple. It's got a phenomenal science background to it. Um, we have a paper right now uh, under review uh, about this this good, better how technique, but here's how it works. And it fits perfectly with what you're saying. Okay. Let's level set around good. What's good about my current situation. What's good about what I've done up to this point. And so you're not doing this just to pat yourself on the back. You're doing this for very prescriptive reasons. First of all, you're starting to acknowledge those good things and you're looking for those good things. Cause we know that those things that are rewarded are repeated. Mm-hmm. And so if I acknowledge the fact that these things are good, then I'm likely to repeat that behavior. The other thing is it frames things from a level setting around the positive. And then the next thing that we're talking about is what could be better. Not what was bad, but what could be better. Yeah, I'm the top RVU getter. That's good. Now, what could I do better? I could improve the quality. I could contribute in these other areas. I could do, these are all things I could do better. How am I going to do that? Now, now we put a plan together. We close a gap. Here's where I am. Here's where I want to go. How do I close that gap one step at a time? So it's a very prescriptive way of thinking about it. And the very best in the world use something like that. They don't talk about what's bad. They talk about where I am. And what I can do to get better. Mark, genius, because that to me is gets back to the whole thing of good people, you know, don't need coaching. Great people want coaching and excellent people or whatever the top tier, they want the truth. Mm -hmm. And what you just talked about says to me, this is truth. Yeah. Level set. Good. What are you doing right now? Yeah, you're the best. You're number one. Kudos. Good for you. Yeah. All props to you. And not a but, but and where's opportunity for better? Where's the truth here? Come mm-hmm. on, let's get to the truth. Can you truthfully say that you are optimized? Are you optimized on every dashboard light you got going there? Mm-hmm. Is there something that can be better? And that's the truth. And that's where I love the idea of some people who are authentic that say, give me the truth, give me you know, let's talk about that and not sugarcoat everything that um, you're good enough just the way you are. There's room in which we are, you know, now I'm going to start mixing metaphors here. We're getting crazy, but too philosophical, but I love that Mark. I love the idea that we can all do a good, better how Uh, there's, there's opportunity for leveling up and optimizing something and then maintaining Mm -hmm. that, right. Maintaining that. Well, I'm going to disagree with you. Okay. We don't want to maintain that. We want to keep getting better. Mm. Right? Yes. We we use good, better, how to get back, not just to assess our current situation to get better. And then when we get in that better situation, we use good, better, how to get better. 
right? It's a constant improvement, mm -hmm. but it's not a kick yourself to improve. It's a help yourself up to improve, right? Because so many people use the, oh, you're, you know, you're lousy. You didn't get that grant done. How can you be so dumb? That is in the beginning can push people forward in the long run will burn people out. Right. It's a negative cycle of negative. Right. Yes, Mark. Yes. And that's where I see so many early career faculties, you know, faculty member really struggling because they have this imposter syndrome or the social comparison. They're comparing their inners to somebody outward outers. And they look at these big famous people like, I'll never be a Mark Guadagnoli. I don't, I'm never going to have a CV like his. I'm never going to do that without realizing Mark's got an anti-CV. And when Mark was at your stage, Mark's CV didn't look like it is now, mm -hmm. you know, so that, that kind of sense of dread and grief is, is damaging. You're right. Long-term. And then I'm also thinking of some people who have such healthy egos and really feel like they're at the top of their game and don't have that humility to recognize, no, there's ever the evolution continues. And even if it's, you feel like you are the ultimate sense of being Part of you could be developing somebody right a rung beneath you on the ladder. So that's another opportunity of you know teaching and bringing others up. So that's another opportunity is what I'm thinking that the you know, the good better how are you teaching to your to your best? Are you sponsoring and coaching others? There's another. Avenue. Well, yeah, and, and if you feel like you're the uh, you're at your your peak and your ultimate being. Maybe one of the things you could do better is a sense of better gratitude. Mm. Wow. Right. Yeah. So a practice and, and, you know, I'm not being tried about this. A practice of gratitude is it is one of the distinguishers between people who consistently perform at a high level and those who do not. And, and there, I, I won't get into it right now, but there are so many reasons that that is true. And so, yeah, it, it the point is that, that we can all be better at some place, right? And if we can get better without having to kick ourselves about it, then good for us, right? To be able to do that. I, I will say also, because to a point that you you actually brought this up earlier, so I wanted to mention it about habits. Is that us? you got a fire alarm going. Oh, apparently, this is very important. That's why that's going off, what I'm about to say. <laughs> I love it. I love it. We're going to keep okay. that in. That's real life, man. <laughs> so uh, you had brought up the idea of habits. Yes. And one of the things that's really important, see, because the alarm is going off again. So this must be very important. So weird. And you know what's weird is my phone going off too. Is there something we need to know? <laughs> my phone just kind of lit that's up. That's right. The, the world is uh, coming to an end. The end of the world. And I feel fine. That's a great <laughs> song, by the way. So I'm a big fan of habits. There's a book you probably have heard it, read it, Atomic Habits, I think is great. So I'm going to borrow this from Atomic Habits. There you go. Yep. <laughs> Look at you and uh, I. We're we've I got, we've got the same reading list. Um, so you already know this that I'm going to tell you, but I think it's worth uh, saying it. The, the where, yeah, the power of habits is phenomenal as well. Uh, when I blank, I will blank. So for example, when I walk into the room, I will do 10 push-ups. Okay. If, if fitness is part of what I'm trying to do, it seems to be a theme today with you and me fitness. Um, and 
what that does is it takes out all the decisions. It creates triggers rather than willpower. And all I have to do is, is that, right? I walk into the room. That's the stimulus. The response is me. I will blank. I will do 10 push-ups. And then the reward piece that both of those books talk about, which almost everybody misses, is how do I reward that, mm-hmm. right? Do I get a glass of chocolate milk? Do I say, boy? It doesn't really matter, right? As long as I'm stimulus response reward right. system. Right. And, and I love this, I will blank when I blank, mm-hmm. because you know, if I, if I am going to write, I'm working on a, a book right now. And if I'm, I need to write every day, mm-hmm. when I walk into my office, I will sit down and write for 30 minutes. It's not a huge lift, but 30 minutes turns into an hour or maybe an hour and a half, or maybe it's just 30 minutes. And I could even do, you know, mini habits is another one of those titles. I could either do a mini habit. When I walk into my office, I will open the computer and write for two minutes. Mm -hmm. And there's no reason I have no excuse not to do that. But now I'm creating a habit around writing Mm -hmm. with almost no willpower whatsoever. Right. It's just a trigger. And so I think if we can create habits and rituals around the kinds of things that support the life that we want, Mm. we're much more likely to have the life that we want. Beautifully said. Really, really good. The challenge point, everybody take take a look at that article. It's super interesting. You've heard so much juicy stuff today. This feedback method. Uh, Mark told us about the good, better, how, performance optimization. We all have a lot to learn here and do here. And if not for ourselves, but for others, this has been really, really great. Mark, do you have anything you'd like to add before we close up for the day? Just gratitude. Uh, Kim, I, I uh, first of all, I really enjoyed talking to you again. Um, and secondly, um, yeah, I'm just very grateful that I get to to share with you and I get to learn things from you as well. I get to see that we have the same reading list. Um, but yeah, I, I feel very grateful to be able to, to be in these kinds of situations and share information with people. Dr. Mark Guadagnoli from UNLV, this has been really great. Thank you so much for spending time. And despite, I hope, I hope the building's fine and you're not in any danger, but if so, please scoot. Um, friends, you see how easy this is and how fun this is. Come on, be on the Faculty Factory podcast uh, and email me at facultyfactorykim if you know somebody who should be in the podcast or you want to be on. All you do is we just do a Zoom and it's all audio recorded. And check out Mark's new podcast, The Academy. He's going to be putting a lot of free resources also on YouTube and Instagram. He's got the whole um, he's got the whole machine figured out over there. So again, Mark, thank you so much. And we'll see you all next time on the Faculty Factory Podcast. You're welcome. Thank you, Kim. Thanks for tuning in to Faculty Factory Podcast. The mission of the Faculty Factory is to build and support a community of leaders in faculty development who share tools, resources, wisdom, and encouragement in service to our faculty members, schools, and institutions. We encourage you to go to facultyfactory.org to find out more, get in touch with me, ask me any questions. Maybe you want to be interviewed on the podcast. Thanks for tuning in to Faculty Factory Podcast. We'll see you next time.
The Faculty Factory podcast and website is sponsored by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine Office of Faculty. For more information, visit facultyfactory.org.